It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Martha McCallum. I'm Bill Hemmer. I'm Shannon Bream, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023. I'm Lisa Brady. Former President Donald Trump is hit with new federal charges, conspiracy counts over efforts to overturn the 2020 election. The facts are going to be hard to prove. The law is going to be hard to interpret. It will go, I am sure, to the Supreme Court because of the unprecedented nature of the charges. I'm Dave Anthony. It's adding fuel to the Republican fire. What a Hunter Biden ex-business associate told lawmakers in a private Q&A. The value Hunter Biden brought to the business arrangement was the Biden brand. And the Biden brand was Joe Biden, powerful, influential political figure in D.C. We speak with House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan. And I'm Ben Lieberman. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. The 45th president of the United States is indicted for the third time. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. Special counsel Jack Smith also leads the classified documents case against Trump. This new case is about efforts to overturn the 2020 election in the run-up to the Capitol riot. Smith saying during his announcement last night, this case is consistent with the Justice Department's commitment to hold accountable people who are criminally responsible for the attack on the Capitol, calling it an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy. It's described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies. Lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the U.S. government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. The indictment says Trump had a right to speak publicly about the election, even to make false claims and to challenge the results, but that he also broke the law by pursuing illegal ways to overturn the election. It also references unnamed co-conspirators. Trump attorney John Lauro tells Fox News the First Amendment is under assault. A former president is being prosecuted by a political opponent who wields the power of the criminal justice system for what he believed in and the policies and the political speech that he carried out as as president. This is unprecedented. Trump, who continues to call the special counsel deranged, is due in court tomorrow. In terms of the substance of the indictment, it's not that serious. We spoke with former Deputy Assistant Attorney General John Yu shortly after the indictment was unsealed. He's now a law professor at the University of California, Berkeley. The indictment doesn't add anything to what we already know. Of course, in terms of presidential history, in terms of the public interest, this is by far the most important of all the prosecutions that President Trump is going to face. Uh, we're talking here about an allegation that a sitting president and a candidate for the office for re-election conspired to prevent Congress and the states from picking Joe Biden as president. You can't conceive of anything more serious than that. And that it's taking place while that same defendant is running for president again. So the broader constitutional political 
importance can't be overstated, even though we're all familiar by now with the facts and the charges. Just last week, more charges were added to the first federal indictment against the president involving classified documents, um, including a new defendant and a new allegation in that case that he ordered the property manager at Mar-a-Lago to try to delete security footage. Is one of these federal cases harder to prove than the other or even facing a higher legal standard in terms of bringing the charges? The uh, Mar-a-Lago classified documents case is easy to prove, even though I don't think the public interest is necessarily that important here to get a conviction. Meanwhile, the January 6th case, which is just indicted today, is the exact reverse. It is, as I said, perhaps the most important kind of prosecution that can be brought, but it's going to be extremely difficult to prove because the Jack Smith indictment today really stretches the law in unprecedented ways, in ways that have never been charged before, to try to punish President Trump for what he did on January 6th. The facts are going to be hard to prove. The law is going to be hard to interpret. It will go, I am sure, to the Supreme Court because of the unprecedented nature of the charges. While it looks to me like the special counsel in the Mar-a-Lago case has the facts pretty much nailed down from multiple sources. And the government has prosecuted many people for taking classified documents in the past. The January 6th indictment actually references free speech and the right even to make false claims. It's right there in the indictment. Fox News contributor Jonathan Turley from George Washington University has called this the criminalization of disinformation, suggesting that indeed there are free speech issues that prosecutors are going to have a hard time with. Do you agree? Yes. In fact, I would say in a way it's even more important than just free speech. It's also the right of a candidate and a political party to press their claims through our constitutional system. I I don't think this is really a misinformation case as much. And I think that's why the prosecution is on shaky grounds. President Trump lost the popular vote, but our system is not a democracy. It's a republic. The states are the ones that send the electoral votes and the Congress counts them. The vice president counts them with the Congress sitting there. President Trump pursued all of these. It was unprecedented. It has happened a few times in our past, though. He pursued these alternative methods to try to get himself chosen president at odds with the popular vote. I don't see why that's criminal. Just in the same way, there were members of the Senate and the House, remember, on January 6th, who objected to the counting of the electoral vote from certain states like Arizona and Pennsylvania. According to the theory of this indictment, all of those senators and members of the House are also now possibly subject to prosecution because they also wanted to reject the popular votes from that state, those states in favor of the electoral college vote. I think that it's not just you're criminalizing political, you're, you might be criminalizing perfectly legitimate alternatives and uh, methods that our constitutional system allows, even though Trump, as I think he should, even though Trump lost and failed in those efforts. The brief statement from the special counsel, Jack Smith, leaned heavily into the Capitol attack, although this indictment is about conspiracy. It's not about incitement. Could that be an issue 
for prosecutors as this case makes its way through the courts? I think this is the most glaring defect in the indictment is there is no claim that there is a any link. And I'm really disappointed. I thought that they should not bring a charge like this unless they could prove factually that there was some kind of direct factual link between President Trump and the January 6th rioters. So that's one. The second glaring defect is where is the charge for insurrection? That's the one that would make the most sense if you really thought President Trump was responsible for January 6th, responsible for the attack on the Capitol, then he ought to be charged with insurrection. Instead, the special counsel is trying to charge him for things like defrauding the government, which is usually a statute they used to go after, say, government contractors for overcharging the Pentagon, trying to use it to actually say, oh, President Trump is responsible for blocking the Electoral College count on January 6th, that's an unprecedented use of that statute. And I'm not sure it's going to survive on appellate review. This is now the third indictment of a former president. It's Trump's second federal indictment, but he had already been indicted in New York in a hush money case. He's also still under investigation in Georgia for possible election interference. What about the timing of these three criminal cases going forward. The New York case is supposed to go to trial in March. The classified documents case in Florida was supposed to begin in May, but that was before the recent superseding indictment in that case. Is there a legal restriction on how much a defendant is supposed to you know, be able to prepare for at any given time? This is going to cause problems for President Trump's ability to put on a defense and get a fair trial, but it should never have come to this. Prosecutors are supposed to consider whether their case is in the public interest. And particularly when it comes to the classified information case, when it comes to this New York hush money case, which involves events from years and years ago, and maybe the forthcoming possible indictment in Atlanta, Georgia, you know, prosecutors should and must take into account whether their cases are so important that they justify interfering with our running of the 2024 presidential election. Why not wait until after the results are known? Now, I think January 6th is different. I think January 6th might be so important that you do want to have some resolution of that. Although by waiting until now, you know, two years, three years after the events, uh, the special counsel's guaranteed that these trials are going to interfere with the presidential elections one way or the other. Trump has accused the special counsel of election interference. Um, could that become part of his legal defense? Is that a valid legal defense in any of these cases? No, I don't think it's a question of uh, something that one could raise. Maybe it could come up if President Trump, for example, were to claim because of all the attention and publicity that's going to come because of the election, that it would be unfair. He won't be able to get an impartial jury. Any juror in the country is going to know what he's being accused of. And the idea is we want to have an unbiased, we call it an ignorant jury. We want the jury to be ignorant of any of the facts and the situation. They don't prejudge anything or bring any biases or preconceptions to it. However, I don't think he can say the fact that he's running for president alone is a defense. That, again, as I was saying, I think that is really for the prosecutors and the attorney general and ultimately the sitting president to consider 
when they think about you know triggering the criminal justice system to go after someone who's possibly going to be one of the two major party candidates for president in a few months. Trump has also said he will not stop running, even if he's convicted. Is there any law against that or could Congress make a law against that? And what if he is convicted and let's say he does win election again? Would it be legal to pardon himself? Is that something that federal prosecutors would have or should have considered? Well, the Constitution sets out the only requirements you need to have to become president, you know, like age, citizenship, residency, and so on. You know, being a convicted felon is not one of them. Now, I have to say, I find it very hard to believe that the special counsel can wrap up these cases and get a verdict that survives on appeal in time for the elections. Just the charges he's bringing are so unprecedented, have never been charged for anything like this, that they would almost surely go on appeal, not just to the federal uh, courts above the trial court in Washington, but to the Supreme Court. That usually takes years. So this is almost in a way the worst of all possible worlds because the prosecution is throwing the case in there at a time when it's going to interfere with the election, but there can't be a definitive verdict up or down in time for the elections. One other thing, and you alluded to this in some ways earlier, but which of the now three criminal cases against the former president is the most perilous for him based on what we know so far about the evidence? Uh, In terms of just getting a straight conviction on the evidence, by far the highest probability of a conviction is in the Mari Lago classified documents case where you've got multiple, I think, multiple pieces of evidence and you have criminal statutes which are right on point and have been used for such cases in the past and have been upheld in the courts. So I think that's the one that President Trump should be most worried about. Former Deputy Assistant Attorney General John Yu, thank you so much for your time. Of course, anytime. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. This is Ben Lieberman with your Fox News commentary. Coming up. He is a key link in the Republican chain of Hunter Biden investigations. An ex-business associate, Devin Archer, who was on the board at the same time as Hunter Biden of a Ukrainian energy company called Burisma. Well, he told the House Oversight Committee that Hunter Biden put his father, then Vice President Biden, on speakerphone with overseas clients more than 20 times, prompting Congressman James Comer, the committee chair, to tell Fox... Joe Biden has lied to the American people. He knew exactly who his son was getting those millions and millions of dollars of wires from, and he spoke to him, and he spoke to them often. Democrats say no. Those calls were just small talk, never about business. A White House spokesman told Fox Republicans failed to show any wrongdoing. An IRS whistleblower disagrees. Each witness that comes in is providing more mm-hmm. and more 
evidence and it cannot be denied. Gary Shapley tells Fox lawmakers are doing what he could not. Every time that, that we needed to ask questions about President Biden's involvement in, 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 in relation to the business dealings, um, we just weren't allowed to do that. The IRS investigation led to a Hunter Biden plea deal. A federal judge refused to accept last week on tax evasion that included a diversion program to wipe out a felony gun charge. The Republican leaders of three House committees have written to Attorney General Merrick Garland demanding more information. Well, I think that the judge uh, kind of hit the nail on the head when she asked in the, in the actual court proceedings, she asked the prosecution team, the government, she says, is this deal truly unprecedented? And his answer was, yes, it is, Your Honor. Congressman Jim Jordan from Ohio chairs the Judiciary Committee. They tried to sneak in some of the immunity uh, in uh, language in the diversion part of the agreement and not in the plea deal itself, which doesn't happen. So I thought that was a big takeaway. And then, of course, the other big takeaway, and I think in the last month that we've learned is the story from the Biden White House uh, has continued to change as far as the president's involvement with his son's business. And then, of course, the story from the Justice Department has changed multiple times. And the story that hasn't changed, the testimony that's been consistent, is the testimony from Gary Shapley and Mr. Ziegler, the two whistleblowers who came forward. The whistleblower story has been corroborated by an FBI agent and their consistency and just how credible they appeared in the open hearing. I think the American people believe the whistleblowers. What do you want done in this Hunter Biden criminal case? It's still ongoing, of course. They're still trying to rework this. Do you want that deal off the table entirely? Well, I think the judge will determine that. What we want to know is what really happened Because obviously what the whistleblowers have come for and the reason they came for, we pointed this out during the hearing a couple weeks ago, is they're concerned about the equal application of the law. And they see in this situation that has not taken place. It sure looks like that's the case with the agreement they tried to put together, with what the whistleblowers have said, with the changing story from David Weiss. Remember, David Weiss wrote me twice in the month of June. First letter, he says, I have the ability to bring charges where I want, when I want, and whether to bring them at all. Then, literally 23 days later on June 30th, he writes me again and says, I stand by what I wrote, but I want to expand on it. I can't bring charges anywhere except my home district. Well, which one is it? Can you bring them anywhere, anytime, and for whether you want to or not, or are you limited? You can't have it both ways. So we want to get to the bottom of it. We want to get all the answers. There's a number of people we want to talk to who were involved in the investigation, and we're going to continue to pursue that. All right. Now, as far as Devin Archer is concerned, he spoke behind closed doors with the House Oversight Committee staff and hours worth of questions. The big takeaway, the more than 20 phone calls that he claims that then-Vice President Biden was involved in with Hunter Biden's business uh, clients and associates. I mean, that's kind of what we expected, and he confirmed that. But what I think the real takeaway for me was this meeting that took place in Dubai on December 4th, 2015, between Hunter Biden, the two key people in the um, uh, in, in uh, Burisma, Mr. Zolotevsky, who ran the company, and then the, the other guy, Mr. Bazarski. They and Hunter Biden uh, are meeting uh, along with Devin Archer. And during that meeting, they expressed to Mr. Archer and Mr. Biden, they said, Uh, We need help from the U.S. government because we're under all kinds of pressure, pressure from the Ukrainian prosecutor, pressure from Great Britain, who has, you know, sanctioned and and froze some of our money. We're under pressure and we need the help of the U.S. government. And then there's a phone call that takes place that night where they called what Mr. Archer said was D.C. But the key takeaway was five days later, December 9th, 2015. Vice President Biden goes to to Ukraine, gives a speech, and criticizes the prosecutor. 
literally five days after this conversation, this meeting took place between Burisma and Mr. Uh, Hunter Biden and Mr. Archer. And, of course, Burisma was the company that the prosecutor was investigating in Ukraine, and the vice president criticizes that. So I think that was kind of the key element there. And, again, maybe the bigger takeaway as well is this: what, what we learned from Mr. Archer is not consistent with, Ms., with what President Biden has said now for a couple of years, that he had no involvement, no knowledge, no, none whatsoever with his son's business. That's just not the case. All right. Now, as far as the prosecutor goes, President Biden has said many times that that prosecutor was under international scrutiny. There was a global call for him to be removed because of corruption, that it had nothing to do with Burisma or or anything like that. What do you say to that? Uh, I think the timing of this whole thing is suspect, as I just pointed out. And I think, there, of course, there's all kinds of corruption in Ukraine. It's just been one of the most corrupt countries. Uh, the ambassadors and, and the, uh, the, the folks we spoke to and the State Department personnel have said that all along. All right, Congressman, I want you to hear one of your Democratic colleagues, what he had to say about Devin Archer and the testimony and those many times that Hunter got his dad, the vice president, on the speakerphone. This is Congressman Dan Goldman. That they never discussed any business on that phone conversations. There were niceties and there was a hello and there we talked about the weather or whatever it was, but it was never any business. Your reaction to that? Uh, I'm not surprised that that's what Mr. Archer testified to. I'm not surprised that these phone calls weren't like, oh, uh, let's let's say, um, hey, Mr. Vice President, can you do X for us? I mean, I, I never expected that. Remember what Mr. Archer said. He said they were the value Hunter Biden brought to the business arrangement was the Biden brand. And the Biden brand was Joe Biden, powerful, influential political figure in D.C., that was the power. So the power is when you're in these meetings, you you put the vice president on the phone and he says hello. He doesn't have to say anything else. So I wasn't surprised by that testimony. I guess I was surprised that that we had never known the extent that Mr. Biden actually showed up at dinners with Hunter Biden's business partners and some of the people they were doing business with. Now, four years ago, we went through a whole impeachment drama over yeah. then-President Trump's phone call. That was with Ukraine's president at the time, still President Vladimir Zelensky, supposedly leaning on him for help getting information on Biden to further his re-election campaign. And that was a whole drama that played out for months and months. Yeah. Would Republicans be willing to try to impeach President Biden over those phone calls, niceties and, and the weather and that kind of thing? Well, I mean, I think the speaker uh, has said now uh, multiple times that we're going to do our work. Uh, we're going to do our investigation that we're required to do under the Constitution. And if, if, in fact, the facts keep driving us to a point where an impeachment inquiry status is necessary, then the speaker said we will go there. One of your Republican colleagues, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, I'm sure you know her well, she has said people don't trust Congress. You guys have to have evidence that's so powerful that they'll have to trust that when you put it forward. What, how far in the evidence do you have to implicate President Biden for wrongdoing? The White House says there's still no evidence of wrongdoing of any kind. What do you need? Well, I don't look at it that way. I look at it, we're just doing our job. Okay. Uh, and the Oversight Committee is doing their investigation. We're doing an investigation. We're looking at the Justice Department and the, as I said, the, the disparate treatment, the unequal application of the rule of law. I don't look at it as like we're trying to get something so we can do something else. That's just the wrong way to do things and not how I view it. I view it as we need to do our job, um, our constitutional duty to conduct oversight 
that is in furtherance of our duties as legislators, and that's what we're focused on doing. Congressman Jordan is also leading a probe into what Republicans call the weaponization of the federal government. Last month, a hearing into online censorship featured Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. A government that can censor its critics has license for every atrocity. It is the beginning of totalitarianism. Now, his fellow Democrats who claim Kennedy has spread anti-vax and COVID disinformation tried to stop that hearing. I move that we move into executive session because Mr. Kennedy has repeatedly made despicable anti-Semitic and anti-Asian comments as recently as last week. But Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz was outvoted by Chairman Jordan and his GOP colleagues. Well, we want to protect the First Amendment. That, that, that's what's under assault by today's left and this coordination between big government, big tech to limit the First Amendment liberties of the American people is as wrong as it gets. And what we wanted from Facebook, and we ultimately got, uh, was we wanted the release of those internal communications like we saw in the Twitter files. And what we, what we got uncovered last week was communications from the government to the top people at Facebook saying, take down this material. Since one, of the, one of the executives at Facebook, Mr. Clegg, said this is quickly approaching on the boundaries of First Amendment expression. Of course it is. And, and they knew it was wrong, but they said, we're going to do it anyway. We're going to do what the government's telling us to do, censoring American speech, because we're concerned about our relationship with the White House, and the White House is really mad. How should Facebook, Twitter, and any of these social media companies handle when people deliberately put disinformation, misinformation, lies about other people online? Should that just be let it out there and let the public decide? Well, that's the First Amendment. But also remember this, they were taking down things that were true. I mean, that's the problem. So many of the things they want, the, when the government's the arbiter of what's misinformation and what's not, what's true and what's not, that is scary. That's, that's exactly why you have the First Amendment, because the government gets it wrong so often. Yeah, but one of those Democrats at that hearing said that you, the Republicans, are giving a platform and you want a platform to spread conspiracy theories, no matter how harmful, for the MAGA Republican agenda. They're the ones who are pushing the idea that, oh, uh, let's think of, uh, think of all the things. Take COVID, which is something that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was, was being uh, censored a, a lot for, his, his comments about it. But they've told us, you know, they told us that it didn't come from a lab. Well, it sure looks like it did. They told us it wasn't, uh, um, they told us that uh, it wasn't gain of function research. They told us that, um, you know, that the vaccinated couldn't get the virus, the vaccinated couldn't spread the virus. They told us that. Natural immunity didn't, wasn't, didn't work. I mean, like, so many things they told us were just absolutely wrong, and yet they were censoring people who disagreed with the wrong things they were saying. That, that's why you, you have a First Amendment, and you don't want this kind of censorship to take place. So uh, I think we're making a difference in, in pointing out where these agencies have been turned against the very people they're supposed to serve, we the people, the American people. And we're going to keep doing our work because it's, again, what we're supposed to do under the Constitution. Congressman Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet, Dave. Take care. Hey, everyone, it's Kennedy, and you can listen to my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It's going five days a week on the Fox News Podcast Network. We're bringing you all the fan favorites. Listen on Spotify, Apple, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Ben Lieberman. What's on your mind? 
We have seen a big consumer backlash in 2023 over Biden administration bureaucrats targeting gas stoves. But that could pale in comparison to the coming anger over costly air conditioning regulations. In fact, it has already begun, making this unusually hot summer even more unpleasant for homeowners needing air conditioner repairs. And things could get downright ugly starting next summer. The Environmental Protection Agency just announced a 40% production cut in 2024 for hydrofluorocarbons, or HFCs, the widely used class of refrigerants being targeted for their claimed contribution to climate change. As it is, the modest 10% cut enforced today has already caused many HFCs to triple in price, including HFC 410A, which is used in most home air conditioners. As a result, replacing refrigerant lost from a leak has cost millions of homeowners at least $150 to $200 more than it used to. But next summer, these stricter production quotas will be in effect, likely sending refrigerant costs through the roof and repair costs with them. EPA regulators are targeting new systems, too. A pending rule would outlaw all but the most climate-friendly new central air conditioners by 2025. Doing so is strongly supported by the air conditioning equipment makers who see an opportunity to skew the market towards their pricier new models. It would be bad enough if EPA were the only federal agency that has it in for affordable air conditioning, but the Department of Energy is just as bad. DOE has a track record for concocting energy efficiency regulations for air conditioners and other appliances that boost a homeowner's upfront costs so much that it may never get earned back in the form of energy savings. Perhaps the worst of them, created at the end of the Obama administration and taking effect on January 1st of this year, has caused prices for new central air conditioning systems to spike by up to $1,000, according to several installers. And the agency is already in the early stages of devising an even tougher rule. Separate rulemakings also target window unit air conditioners and other categories of cooling systems. Now, what explains the anti-homeowner tilt? Well, like so much of the nonsense coming from Washington these days, it's based on the Energy Department's need to confront the global climate crisis, unquote. Indeed, beyond air conditioners and stoves, Biden's regulators are going after furnaces, incandescent light bulbs, washing machines, refrigerators, dishwashers, ceiling fans, water heaters, and other home appliances. Hardly any room in your house will be spared, and each proposed new regulation asserts that the climate-related benefits help justify the extra cost. All of this meddling is bad news for consumers, but the measures targeting air conditioners will likely prove to be the worst of the bunch. The one-two punch of both EPA and DOE aiming their red tape at air conditioners has already boosted the cost of staying cool this summer, and starting next year, the homeowner paying could be every bit as unbearable as the heat. This is Ben Lieberman, a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Dana Perino. Join me for season three of my limited time podcast, Everything Will Be Okay, based on my best-selling book of the same name. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. 
I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.